Hi, this is Nancy Yearald, and welcome to High Road to Humanity. And I'm here today with Julie Lewis. And Julie, welcome to High Road to Humanity. Thanks for having me. You know, I just changed the name of the show. I should I should say something to to Nancy's Psychic View because on all the shows. I give my intuitive take. And so I think hierarchy humanity was a little confusing to people. And so I put Nancy's psychic view and then hierarchy humanity, you guys, is like the byline. I'll just say this so that you guys aren't confused on what I'm doing. But that's why. So people could kind of understand. So because this is hierarchy humanity, we have Julie here today. And I'm going to read a little bit about Julie. Um, so in May... Well, let me just say this. In 1990, her, she was diagnosed with HIV. She was given three to five years to live. So it's been over 39 years, you guys, and she's still here. God bless. And she shares her story in a new memoir. And the book is called Still Positive. And you've got the book there. You want to hold it up for the people yeah, who are watching us on YouTube today. All you people who are listening on the podcast will have to check it out. Still Positive, nice cover. It's a remarkable book. It, it chronicles her journey from simply surviving her diagnosis to becoming an advocate, you guys, an educator and a leader of the 3030 Project with her son, Grammy award-winning music producer, Ryan Lewis. So she has navigated these times. Uh, she's created the foundation for her advocacy today, which she continues. And uh, her dedication is to bring accessible healthcare to women and families around the world. And you're doing that. I mean, you're bringing, you've done a lot overseas before we get into your story. I mean, I was reading you've, I mean, you've reached, uh, Bolivia, India, Kenya, Puerto Rico, um, South Africa. Yeah. Yeah. The 3030 project, um, I can talk more about that later. Yeah. Uh, but our, our goal was to fund 30 healthcare facilities in areas around the world that lack healthcare access. And we've almost completed, um, we've completed 29 of the 30 buildings. We're, we're working on the last one, which is India. But in the end, we um, we worked with 18 organizations in nine different countries. So yeah, we've been a few places, including the US. We've done some projects here. In the United States too. We'll tell your story. So here you are. I, this is really interesting. Um, your story could happen to anybody. So it's August of 1990. It's summertime and you get a phone call. I'll let you take it away. I do. Um, I mean, just to clarify, um, in case there's a math whiz out there, um, my story in this book starts in 1990, but I was actually infected with HIV in 1984. Yes. And that's how, that's how 39 years. I just didn't know for six and a half years. So in 1990, I got a phone call from... Um, my doctor who had delivered my oldest child, he was a personal friend and he said, you'd better sit down. And then at first I just thought maybe one of our mutual friends died, but you know, it's not going to be good news when, you know, a phone call. Okay. Starts and uh, he said, one of the people who donated blood for your blood transfusion when Teresa was born has AIDS. So you need to go get an HIV test. And I mean, at, in that moment, I had been quite ill for a couple of years with no doctor who could explain why, like, you know, all my tests that they did would come back normal because 
no one was doing an HIV test or even checking my T cells in my blood. Like that just didn't make sense to anyone. Mm -hmm. So um, even though I put on every form, I had a blood transfusion in 1984. So it should have been on someone's radar, but anyway. Okay. So in that moment, when he said that, I just knew, I just knew that was it was going to be positive because it just was like the obvious like answer to these weird medical things I'd been having. So, um, so that was in August of 1990. And the worst part about the whole thing is I had to go take my whole family. to get I married. know your husband. And then you had had two more children. Since I did. That time. Well, this is my oldest daughter and I had breastfed her after the transfusion. So she had a small chance of being infected. And then my other two kids were born to an HIV positive mom. And at that point with no intervention, they had a 25 to 30% chance of being infected. And then Scott and I, you know, we didn't know we had a sexually transmitted disease. And after my third child was born, he had a vasectomy. So poor man, it's like, you know, I, we, you know, we had a lot of opportunity to, uh, for me to infect him, but uh, luckily all those tests came back negative. God bless. So, yeah. I mean, a lot of people, the day they get diagnosed with HIV is like the worst day of their life. But for me, the worst day of my life would have been if anyone else in my family had been infected. Right. So, um, I want to stop a second. You know what? There was a few things I wrote down that hit me from your story. One was that you paid cash for the test because you didn't want at that time. I mean, I just got to take people back and think about this, you know, at that time, you didn't want to tell people you had AIDS or could have AIDS or HIV because then your insurance would drop you. Yes. Yeah. There was no HIPAA in 1990 yeah. and people were very afraid of HIV and no insurance company wanted to pay the, you know, it's expensive. Right. So, um, yeah. So even getting a test, you know, the, the insurance companies, you know, they know your medical information. So even getting a test could put you in enough risk with the insurance company that they would cancel you or or you, if you left the current plan you're on, you wouldn't get a new one. So now, that changed since you're doing this now. So if somebody has a, a, a transfusion and they get this, are they covered now? Generally, I mean, I know you can't speak for everybody, but it's, have things changed? Uh, except for, you know, for one, I mean, this this is just in general. If you need a transfusion today, um, the blood is very safe. There's always that small risk, but they don't give transfusions very often anymore. You have to be almost dead to get a blood transfusion. I know. I know. We were talking about this. I've had one and before the show. I told her. Do you need a blood transfusion? Um, you And I was almost dead. Yeah. And yeah. also, even if you were infected with HIV now, um, the treatments are so good that you're going to, you're going to live a long life, a normal life. And if you're on medication, it's impossible to spread the virus. Now that's how HIV is going to end. There's not going to be a vaccine probably, but if people are on medication, they actually can't spread the virus in any way. So um, yeah. But then, so then things were different. I mean, you talk about Ryan White. In April of 1990, I mean, he was that teenager. I don't know if people remember this or not, but he had it and he couldn't even go to school. They burned down their house, I think, didn't they? No, he- that Was that a different house, one? His house didn't get burned down, but he he was banned from going to school. And um, 
but there was another family in Florida, the Ray family, who had a couple of kids who had been also were hemophiliacs and had been infected. And their their um, school district voted that they could go to school. And then they had their house burned down by someone because people didn't want them in their neighborhood. These were the stories I was reading when I first was diagnosed. I was right. like, what are you going to be telling anyone about? Well, like, people were ignorant. It's kind of like, and I, and I don't want to get too much into the COVID because I got to watch what I say on my show. But um, it was like that, you know, it's like when you don't know, people start to panic when they when they don't know. You know, when they're uneducated about this kind of stuff. I just want to say that. I don't know. But it, you were blessed that nobody in the family had it. I do want to talk about, you talk a lot about your childhood. You talk about growing up in the Lutheran church. I wanted to bring this up. And then you talk a lot about going to this Christian camp that really changed you in British Columbia, um, Canada. And that kind of had a basis for your values, didn't it? I mean, didn't it help you or talk about this? Yeah, I... um you know, I've, I've had uh, a faith life for, uh, I swear, since I was born, the minute someone talked about God, just in general, when I was a small child, I thought, oh, yeah, okay. And then I just always felt connect a connection. I didn't really, my family wasn't particularly religious. Half the time, they just dumped me off at church because it was the 60s. And that's what you did, right? And, you know, I don't know if my parents went out to breakfast or what they did. But oh, anyway, they did. <laughs> I love it. And in college, I um, I did a deep dive into the evangelical church and um, and married uh, a person who's was in full time youth ministry, and that was the context that we entered HIV, which was um, kind of crazy. And and just to also set the stage for this, I grew up with a gay brother who I'm very very close to, Chris. And, Chris and I talked about it in the book and when I was diagnosed he told me that he had been diagnosed four years earlier but I I kind of knew he might be infected because so many of his friends had died by 1990 um so I lived in this weird world of like really having a lot of um gay friends and a brother and being like married to a person who is in a very conservative job within a very judgmental church at the time about HIV and gay people. So, oh, it was rough. And then I'm also by um, schooling in public health. I, I used to be a health teacher and a science teacher, and then I went into public health. So, oh, I just felt like my worlds were like, I just kind of had to keep people away from each other. So they didn't like damage each other. Yeah. yeah. I have to say, it's. Uh, I want to say the book is very well written. Like I was reading it and I was like hurrying to get back because I had to, I was reading it online and I was like, oh, I got to see what happens. You know, it was one of those stories where you wanted to find out. I don't want to give your whole book away. <laughs> it was really well written. I mean, you it was sad as in the first few chapters. So I don't think we can <laughs> give it away. You know, there's so much in here. Um, something that really bothered me and I wrote it down here. Um, there was a man that told Scott, he had a dream. Um, some of these people, and I say this cause I'm an intuitive. So it really irritated me. 
So I want you to talk about this because I like yesterday, I'll just say this. I was at the doctor's office and there was a receptionist. She was having a bad day. And I said, I'm a psychic, you know that? And she said, no. And I said, do you want me to tell? She was upset. And I said, do you want me to tell you? And she said, yeah. So I'll ask people. I thought about this when I read your book. These people were like doing predictions. Oh, yeah. Talk about this. I was like. Oh my God, I would never do that. And I know things. So talk about this. What happened? Happened quite often, actually. Um, well, I mean, within the very uh, charismatic evangelical church uh, back in the day, I don't go there anymore. So I'm not right. sure what's going on now. What's going on now? Um, people would often get a prophecy, kind of like they did in the Bible, and they would tell you things. And it always bothered me too, because I'm Lutheran, which is like one step away from Catholic, which is very like the liturgy is the same. <laughs> you know, it's a very different kind of Christianity in, in a lot of ways. And um, and yet it was fascinating. It's kind of like going to a fortune teller in a way. I mean, it was well, fascinating. But it's not because this, but I yeah, never, no, it's not. Because I just, I've always had a deep, I don't know. I've always had a deep peace about things that are true. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I do a lot of thinking, I kind of live in my head more than, you know, my, my husband's a total heart person and I'm a total, like, you know, I'm a science teacher. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so I would hear these things and I would just, I was such a skeptic about all of that. Right. Well, reason, I was just bugged because you were in this women's group and, and you were having, it was like a retreat, a Christian retreat. And I just want to get this out because it really bothered me. And this woman was like going around like she was, I don't know. See, I hate that when people act like they're God. Just putting your hands on people and saying, you know, like a prophecy or a word or something. But yeah, it was kind of a funny story, actually. Because, well, tell a story. Well, I mean, I was young. I was pregnant with my first child. I was exhausted. I was working full time because, you know, Christian ministry doesn't pay a lot. So we needed two incomes. And so I was watching her go around saying all these great things about people. And I thought, oh, I wonder what she's going to say about me. I was just curious, right? Yeah. And she comes to me and she puts her hand on me and she goes, get some sleep. That's all she said, which could have been an actual word from God because I probably needed that more than anything in my life but on the other hand I just kind of looked at her and like yeah that's an obvious here I'm like eight months pregnant and I look you know but anyway it was it was sort of I don't know if I would have even remembered that whole story except for it was so funny to me yeah like, well and then that man told your husband that he had a dream Yes. And that you're going to have a boy and what his name is. I just think that's a little over the top. I had no idea. I grew up in the church of Christ. I do my own thing now. I'm more spiritual, but I didn't know that they did this kind of stuff. It kind of blew my mind. It kind of blew my mind too. <laughs> I just had to break it up. I was like, that's Honey, just crazy you know, stuff. I came home and, you know, we are believers in God and For sure, I am in miracles and all kinds of things. Yeah. And my husband was doing this full time and working with kids. And we did a lot of, um, we helped a lot of kids and we, we awesome. got to know a lot of kids and all that. But it's like, when I came home, when he came home and told me that 
he was the one that went, well, I know what, I'm never naming any of our kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the cool thing is you named your daughter Teresa after Mother Teresa. I did. <laughs> I think that was like the coolest. I was like, this is who does that though? Like, you know, no expectations there, but you know, my daughter, Teresa is pretty amazing. And um, she's, yeah, it, it wasn't the wrong name for her actually. Um, but I was really, I, when I first got out of college, I taught at a Catholic high school okay. and I was Catholic, but I read a lot about, you know, famous Catholic people and and um and I was kind of interested in just a lot of the Catholic history and Mother Teresa was just so interesting to me and so yeah. and so you know Teresa was not a big name in the 1980s but I was teaching in a Catholic school so there was a lot of Teresas and Mary Teresas and so oh, okay some, and some of those kids were my very favorite students so a few years later when I had my daughter I just and I thought about, to be honest, I thought about her na naming her Lisa, but Lisa Lewis is like a good, like, oh, I love it. <laughs> if you have trouble with S's, that's not going to work out. You know, so. I never thought about that. That's so funny. Well, I want to ask you a question. So you've had this for all these years at one point, and they told you in the beginning, and I want to get this across to the audience, You, they told you you had three to five years to live. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so- you didn't yeah, had, tell anybody a, or anything. You no, know, I had a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old. So on the three-year plan, I would not have seen Ryan start kindergarten. So yeah, that was devastating. And yet not safe to tell people. Um, so we just had a very small community of people who actually knew. So I did a fair amount of lying, uh, you know, or half-truths to try to get out of things. Um you know kids like I I read like the six-year-old you're at the grocery store that's Ryan <laughs> tell what happens he's six years old gosh well first of all so four years into this so in 1994 my oldest daughter Teresa is very smart and listens a lot to adult conversation asked me if if I could have AIDS and I told her I could but I didn't because I didn't want to tell her and then I told Scott, we need to tell them. And we thought about just telling her because she was uh, 10 years old okay, and, uh, and had already had some AIDS education in fourth grade. And yet I had just kept a secret for four years. And that is really stressful. It takes a lot out of you. And I didn't want her to have to keep a secret from her, from her siblings. But what that means is I was going to tell a six, you know, we were going to tell our six-year-old Ryan yeah. that his mom had this thing. And, um, you know, if you want your private information broadcast to the whole entire world, just tell a six-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's absolutely true. And I told him it was his information to share. I didn't want to feel like he was in trouble if he shared it. And so, you know, that was that. And so things happened all the time. But one of my favorites was we were at the grocery store at the checkout and he looked at the checker and he said, does she know you have AIDS? And I was like, well, she does now, dear. And the poor checker, she was just dying, like hiding her face, trying to get through it, you know, but that was what it was like. Yeah. It was almost, it was almost comic relief actually after four years of like just trying to keep this so buttoned up, it was just out there, right. and 
And so, and we, and, you know, we lived in a, a pretty big town, but it, it's kind of a small town feel. And um, so at that point, because I'm an educator, I was able to join a speaker's bureau, which is the whole middle section of the book, really. Right. Um, which changed my life, really, it did. Um, not speak, well, speaking, but I've always been an educator. Um, but the relationships from that speaker's bureau um, really helped you. Yeah, you um, you talk about that in the book a lot. I wanted to ask you, at what point medically did you know that you were going to be okay? Because here we are, you know, all these years later. But at what point did you, or was it like five years and you said, okay, I'm still here, you know? Definitely did that. I went into my doctor's office and went, okay, I'm still here. You were wrong. And he didn't even remember saying that to me. And he said, Seriously? Oh my gosh. He goes, I said that. And I said, yeah, he goes, oh my gosh. But you know, he also was a cardiologist. Um, He was someone I knew. Uh, He was a safe doctor. And I think I just was shocked him, you know, and, um, and he goes, oh my gosh, what doctor would say that? I know that's what, well, and now here you are. And then he said, I would give you many more years than that now. And so that was encouraging. And yet, even after the better medicines came out and the combination therapies, my friends were still dying, especially the long-term survivors. And I, at that point, was becoming a long-term survivor because, you know, 1984. And um, so my co-author, Jenny, has been a friend of mine for a very long time. She's my daughter, Teresa's um, college roommate. And now they're, you know, almost 40. And we've had several jobs together. But when I got to this part in the book, I actually had to ask Jenny because I couldn't actually remember. Like, I said, in 2002, when you met me, what was our story? Like, and she said, Teresa still didn't think you would be at her wedding. And that's yeah. because my friends were still dying of HIV. And so it was still this, you know, you could be on medicine, but the medicines weren't as good as they are now. And if you already had some kind of failing thing in your body, there was no guarantee those medicines would work. I had one friend who literally had a tooth removed and got an infection and it went to his brain and he died like a week later. So there was these weird one-off things that were happening all the time. And I felt pretty good, but um, but the medicines also made me really sick at that point. They don't anymore. So I don't know when the day was when I finally went, oh, I'm, I'm not gonna die. But I do remember the day that I stopped thinking about dying. And that was the day that um, Teresa told me she was pregnant with my first grandchild. Oh, God bless. So you did go to her wedding. Yeah, I just thought, you know, everything at this point is just icing on the cake. Like I'm still here and I'm going to stop thinking about not being here. You know, the third section of the book is called Too Old to Die Young. And that's about when I just stopped thinking about it at all. You know, I just was taking my medicine and trying to stay healthy. And, yeah. and you, have, you have, what has, I mean, what has been your biggest um, lesson from this whole thing? I guess I want to ask you, is it, is it to just enjoy life every day? Have you, have you, has it changed you? I mean, how is it, how, how are things different for you? 
Well, that's a big question. Um, I think there's been phases. Uh, this has been a long time. Um, I think there was a time when I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to enjoy every day. But then you keep living and then you have days that you don't enjoy. And like, I mean, life changes. And you're like, this is real. <laughs> yes. You know, there are days when I'm just depressed, like everyone else or tired or whatever. But I think the biggest thing that it has done for me is um, created in me this, this sense that if I am still here, I should be doing something to give back to the world. Like there's 8 billion people in the world now. That's so many people. And so right now, my big thing, other than raising money for healthcare, which I've done for years, is just to point out to this very, uh, I don't know, it just feels like the world has gotten more polarized. And I just, my best message, I do a lot of speaking, is like there's 8 billion people in the world, people. And so if we can't start embracing our differences, we're not going to get very far here, you know? And it's like, we start by listening to each other and not having to be right all the time. Yeah. And I just feel like, especially in the political landscape we live in right now, if people could just think about the world in a bigger way and even think about God in a bigger way. Like God, if you believe in God, he's created 8 billion people. Let's just believe that he might communicate to some people different than others, you know, yeah. and let's just start to be curious about how people are different. Because one thing that I did learn on that speakers bureau um, in a lot of big cities like Seattle the HIV positive people have speakers bureaus or groups like small groups. And a lot of times they're segregated into a women's group, a long-term survivors group, you know, like all these different groups, right? But in the town where I was living in the 90s, Spokane, we were just big enough to have groups, but small enough that we didn't have subsets. It was just one big group of people with HIV and we were all very different from each other. And in the end, our differences as an educational group was our strength. Like our differences were this, our strength. It's what made us so good at what we did. And I just wish the world would start looking. Connecting. It's connecting. Yeah. 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 Julie, you know, I tell the audience to, I get up in the morning. I don't know if you meditate or not. I'm a type A, so I can't sit too long. I'm working on it. But I connect to the divine, I bring in the light, and I believe that, well, actually, I know. When you connect and you have a relationship, you can say God, you can say higher power, you can say source, divine, whatever you want to call it. There is an energy. And when you connect with that and that love energy, it does balance you. And you have faith. I can tell by looking at you. You just have, a, and you said it in the beginning of the show, you have faith in a higher power. You always have through this whole thing. And I think, I don't want to speak for you, but it feels like that's what's given you the strength to like do the work that you've done. I mean, look what you've done. My goodness. The accomplishments. I, I mean, I didn't build 30 healthcare facilities. <laughs> no, I, but, you, but you had a lot to do with it. Talk about this. Talk I mean, you, you don't want me to build your building. Like, let me just put <laughs> that out there first. 
So the 3030 project, I'll just give a little update yeah. how yeah. that happened and, and where we're at. So in 2014, um, my family wanted to do something to celebrate the fact that I had survived 30 years with HIV. And um, and that felt real weird. Like celebrate, the word celebrate felt weird to me because literally, I mean, I Joyce, Kara, Cammy, Mary, George, Barry, Craig, um, you know, I could just keep going of the, the people I knew who died of AIDS. And it just felt weird. Like, how do I celebrate, you know, surviving? Yeah. So I said to my family, I said, if we could think of a way to do sort of a pay it forward kind of project that did something good for someone else in honor of these friends of ours who died, that would feel okay to me. And so at that time, I was working for a nonprofit called Construction for Change. I'd been there three years. And they build critical infrastructure around the world for organizations working in areas of extreme poverty. Uh-huh. And so, um, so I knew a lot about that. So I, my big idea was to build one healthcare facility somewhere around the world in an area that lacked healthcare access and raise the money for that, um, our family. Mm-hmm. And then Ryan, who in 2014 was like at the height of Macklemore and Ryan Lewis and getting Grammys and he was 25 years old and thought we could do anything. <laughs> I love it. Said to me, mom, we can't just build one. You've lived 30 years. We need to build 30. I mean, that is so many more than one. I just looked at him like, oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> but somehow he talked me into this. So that was the beginning of the 3030 project was um, it was launched in April 2014 with the Indiegogo campaign. And he made a compelling video and the goal to build to raise money to build these 30 healthcare facilities. Um with Construction for Change. We were our own nonprofit. We were a, a initiative under Construction for Change. And, oh man, um, it was a lot of work, um, but we also kind of created this movement and this, this group of people, a lot of people who really believed in this idea um, that healthcare spaces could create healthcare access. And eventually we, we heard him, um, person doing measurement and evaluation and we started to measure the impact of the buildings we were building and the impact was huge and so we actually completed the funding in five years um in 2019 thank goodness because COVID was a horrible time to raise money um and so despite a couple COVID delays we have just completed our 29th building and our last one in India is is hopefully going to be done next year so that it'll be a 10-year turnaround between when we launched 3030 and when it'll be completed. And then Construction for Change continues. Like, I still support them hugely because they they have continued. They're, they, you know, they're healthcare building experts at this point. Um, and they work around the world. Um, and they, they have staff in the locations. And this is the huge thing about CFC. Right. 70% of their project managers are women. Oh, nice. And, in like an that. industry here in U.S. where 9% of project managers are women. So I really love supporting them. I like that. I like that. You know, um, I want to, um, before we get out of here today, too, I want to talk about your book a little bit. Um, Still Positive. It came out, I believe, in May. Is that right? 
Yeah, um, have you gotten some good feedback? Hold it up again. I mean, yes. you know, yeah, let's let the audience see it. Oh, we have, um, I think, uh, on Amazon, I think we have 35. Well, we have 33 five star reviews and two four star reviews. So, oh my gosh, what's well, a good so. one? And the yeah. proceeds, yeah, the proceeds go to all the proceeds we created. Um, you know, since 3030 Project was done uh, with their funding, I still wanted to give, I, I know a lot of organizations, uh, some smaller who are doing great work in healthcare access and equity. I and got a so, new kid, oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, I love your kid. Um, so anyway, I wanted, I didn't want, I, I've never wanted to make money off of my friend's stories. Oh, There's a lot of than stories in this book. Mm -hmm. So Jenny Koenig and I decided we would donate all of our net proceeds to healthcare organizations working on healthcare equity and access both in the US and abroad. So, um, so we created the 3030 Project Legacy Fund and all of our book proceeds go into that fund. And, um, and then we make donations out of that. So that's wonderful. So I tell people, even if you don't love the book, all the money you're spending is going to a good cause. It's going to a good cause. I have a quick question yeah. before we get out of here today. Just something that I thought of. Um, the people, I know that, and I don't know everything about HIV, but I can remember learning or hearing that a lot of this originated in South Africa. How is it over there? Are people, is it still a big deal? Do a lot of people still have it? Is it come down? Have the has the medication helped? I mean, what's the situation? I guess is what I want to ask. Um, I mean, I believe I mean uh, that South Africa still has the highest incidence of HIV, um, but I'm not sure if they have the highest incidence per capita. They have the most numbers. Um, there's places like Malawi where one in ten people are HIV positive. But it all comes down to healthcare um, medication access. Yeah. And, you know, there is access in some countries. Um, the more rural you get in, in, in many countries, uh, the less education, the less access to healthcare in general. Um, yeah, so I think I can't make a blanket statement. Um, I was surprised. We worked in Togo a lot. Um, Construction for Changes built 19 buildings in Togo for healthcare. And um, so Togo, when I first got applications from Togo, I literally didn't know where it was. And I'm like, where in the world is Togo? And it's in West Africa. So, um, so I went there and it is just... Um, if you go to Kenya or different places, you see a lot of healthcare organizations. In Togo, it was the Peace Corps or the government. There weren't any, there wasn't hardly was anyone nothing. there. And then there was this one organization, Integrate Health, who was working with the government. And that's who we've been building for. But I met with a whole room full of HIV positive people, probably 200 people. Oh. And, they, and they said, uh, and this is probably five years ago, they said... They were very huge advocates. They're very intelligent. They had a lot of education, 
the problem was their shipments of medications were spotty. They might get them and they might not get them. And the worst thing that can happen for someone with HIV is to not stay on their medicine because your body can become resistant to that medicine. So it's almost worse to get it, you know, randomly than to, I mean, you know, you want to get it, but not getting it all, at least you're not building up resistance to that whole class of drugs. So it, there's just these problems around the world of access. And um, it's not that- You wouldn't think that today. You know, you wouldn't think it would be that way. I just- well, you know, it, should, it shouldn't It be shouldn't that. be, yeah. It should. Enough money. Like uh, we, you know, it's not like, yeah, I, I yeah. could go, it's like yeah. the world's not even, it's not right. fair. It's not um, the way it should be. I mean, even in Seattle, when I look at like, people who can't get things, whether it's healthcare or school or education. And then I look at Lake Union down here with thousands of yachts that are people's play toys because we have the richest people in the world living here. And it's like, yeah, there's money people. Like we just need to be more generous and, you know, and do what you can individually. You don't have to build 30 healthcare facilities, but there's something you can do. Yeah. Be kind. Oh, exactly. That's my biggest thing right Start now. There. And then be generous, <laughs> you know? Yes. Julie, I'm so glad you came on today. Um, You guys, the book is called Still Positive, 39 Years. She's an AIDS survivor. I have to give you credit. Thanks for writing this, putting this together and all the work you've done and coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me, Nancy. It's been fun. Yeah, I really appreciate it. All right, you guys, I'm going to get out of here for today. If you want an angel reading or if you want me to speak, I've been speaking lately. You can go to my website, nancyyearout.com and book your date and time. Thanks again, Julie. Everyone take care. Have a fabulous week and God bless.